Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast. It's my delight to introduce Amanda Berman. Amanda Berman is the founder and executive director of the Zionist Movement, a new initiative empowering and activating Zionists on the progressive left. Until recently, Amanda was also a civil rights attorney fighting anti-Semitism legally, such as the dual cases against San Francisco State for its constitutional and civil rights violations against Jewish and Israeli students and community members. Amanda Roman, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. In one of your um, blog posts, I think it was, uh, you had a very pithy description of what Zioness is about. And you said it's about pushing anti-Semitism out of progressive spaces. So I want to ask you, uh, first and foremost, what are the progressive spaces that most urgently you feel the need to push anti-Semitism out of? I wish it was a short list. Um, I think basically every progressive movement in America right now and really all over the world holds anti-Semitic views. Um, They're manifesting often as anti-Zionist views, and it's being legitimized, the suggestion that Jewish peoplehood um, shouldn't result in a a sovereign Jewish state, the suggestion that there's something inherently evil or wrong or imperialist about Jews, um, you know, having a sovereign state in our indigenous homeland. This is really part of the conversation in a lot of progressive spaces. It's really overtaken a lot of the, um, the women's movement. It's become central to Black Lives Matter, uh, the BDS movement being adopted as, as a formal uh, position of the Black Lives Matter platform. Um, in LGBT spaces, there's so much conversation about, you know, in, in demonizing Israel and anyone who supports it, which, of course, is the very vast majority of American Jews. Um, anytime anyone talks about the good of, you know, in Israel, it's pinkwashing in, in LGBT spaces. So, I mean, I could go on and on. Everyone in the Standing Rock protest standing in support of the Sioux tribe um, was waving Palestinian flags and talking about indigenous people as if, you know, the Jews are not indigenous to the, the land of Israel. So um, it's a really pervasive problem in our progressive spaces and also a dangerous problem, not just for Jews, but for the integrity of, of our you know, political left. I want to pick up for the moment on this um, phrase you've used, which really resonates with me, which is the articulation of the Jewish people as indigenous to the land of Israel. A, factually, as an historian, not as a liberal Jew, not as a Zionist, not as a a person in the world, but as an historian, I have radical, radical agreement with you that, that that is exactly the right qualifier to articulate what I call our umbilical relationship to the land of Israel. I like that. What do we do? How do we engage with a, not an anti-Semitic, but a, a position of conscience that believes that the Jews are not indigenous, which is just another way of saying that Zionism is colonialism. For the sake of argument, at least, let's agree that the colonial argument and the, the denial of indigenousness, indigenousness are the same argument. Okay. And let's ask... What would it mean if that person had that position and was not anti-Semitic? 
had no sense of Judaism being inferiority or Jews being in any way negative in and of themselves, mm. etc. But simply said, I don't buy the argument of indigenousness. Tell me how you engage with that, what your own thinking is. I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, it's very simple. Someone who holds that point of view is ill-informed. <laughs> so you engage with them as if they are ill-informed and you say, I want to tell you about Jewish history. I want to tell you about the first and second temples. You know, I want to tell you about Jews um, being persecuted in the diaspora for thousands of years because we were pushed out of our home in the land of Israel. And, and that Jews in the diaspora were united by one thing, and that was the drive to Zion. The only thing that we shared in cultures all over the world was that we prayed toward Jerusalem, that we were the children of Zion from Mount Zion. We are the people of Zion. And the drive to Zion to reclaim our home in the land of Israel was the thing that united the Jews. It's something that I think is so inherent to the Jewish identity that we believe in Zionism, not just, you know, in terms of the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, but as our our peoplehood. Zionism, for, to me, is our narrative, it's our story, it's our history. It is Jewish peoplehood. And it's not political. It's not about Bibi. It's not about the conflict. Zionism in no way negates, you know, the possibility of Palestinian statehood. Zionism is about the Jews. And the Jews have a right to declare it as ours, to own it as ours, to tell our own story and what Zionism means to us as a people. Um, and also to separate it from the contemporary politics and policies of the state. And I think it's super important that we reclaim that narrative because it is ours and because it's been weaponized against us, because we haven't defined it um, in our language and we have every right to define its weaponization against us as anti-Semitic because we perceive it as anti-Semitic. If a gay friend tells me someone spoke to me in a way that I, I perceived as homophobic, I would stand in solidarity with my gay friend against that homophobia because they get to, to tell me what someone says to them that hurts them. They get to define their they own get to define offense their, their or their own offense and, and victimhood and, and what discrimina discrimination against their community looks and feels like. And same with us. And so when I am demonized as a Zionist or when I show up in a progressive space because I care so much about social justice activism in America, when I want to fight for my own bodily integrity as a member of the American women's movement, and I am held accountable for Israel's ostensible wrongdoing, or I face a litmus test on, on settlement policy, or I'm told that I have to choose, I have to make a false choice between my identity as a Zionist, which is inherent, and my identity as an American progressive, which is also inherent, I refuse to make that choice. And so Zionist as a place, as a community for all the people like me, which is the vast majority of American Jews, who want to hold all of our values in the same place, and, you know, and, and who really refuse to qualify, let's say, Zionism, who refuse to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what you want me to say so that I can be welcome in this progressive space. It's not only the case that I think it's, it's accurate that the statistical large majority of American Jews remain on the liberal side of mm -hmm. the spectrum. About 80%. And, and that we also remain loving and caring and committed and somehow associating our own destiny with that of Israel. 95%. And there's another even um, uh, slightly softer complicating factor, which I personally experienced and people in my cohort generationally, which is that we grew up in an America, largely urban and suburban um, uh, Jewish communities, where that forced choice of which you spoke 
it wasn't just that we didn't have a forced choice. It was the opposite. Right. It was that there was an implicit yep. marriage yep. between American liberalism, Zionism, and even Judaism. I mean, yep. in way, and so we um, we were we didn't realize how good we had it. <laughs> and the pendulum swings. I mean, right. But it's shocking to yeah. you when you've internally because it's so personal. Right. Right. And, and it's, it's painful. It's right. Right. It's very shocking to come to terms with the fact that there's this new. Discourse, which turns, I don't actually think statistically it turns it on its head, but it feels like it yeah. turns it on its head. It's not 180 degrees right. different now, but there are moments where it feels that way and certain sectors it right. is. There. I want to get, I want to pick up on uh, what I saw as really a conflation of things that you're forced to confront. For example, to be a Zionist and then to say, as you did, that being a Zionist does not mean the negation of Palestinian nationalism. Mm-hmm. It means that Palestinian nationalism has to exist in a context which there is also Jewish nationalism, right. but it doesn't negate anything. Right. And then on the other hand, having to pass what you called a litmus test against, for example, BB or occupation, which are the two examples I think you referred to. But I figure, you know what, if I'm going to call myself a Zionist, which I energetically do, then that means I'm answerable for Zionism and its consequences. I mean, it's true of America. If America does something wrong or I disagree with it and I go abroad, as I often do, then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the American in the room and people talk. I don't say, oh, Trump's not my president. I but say, you also don't say, I no longer think America should exist. Correct. But, but I just want to point out that, um, that where I sit, when I have to confront similar things, not the same, I'm sure, but similar, I'm not so bothered by the witness tests. So it's, it's fascinating because... I would be willing to bet that the times in which you feel like you have to talk about Israeli policy um, in context with your personal Zionism, it's not because someone is forcing you to. It's not because you won't be welcome in a place unless you do. You're making a choice to talk about something that you care about that relates to your personal values, to your convictions, to what you wish the state of Israel would be. But I don't, I would be, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I would bet that you're not doing it because you want to be accepted by someone else. Overwhelmingly, you are correct. What I know is happening in a lot of progressive spaces, I'm I'm not as young as I used to be, but I'm still on the younger side. <laughs> None <laughs> of us I, is as young as we used to be. And I... I understand this space so well because I'm sincerely from it, born of it. And I often talk about how when I was in college, I, you know, I was such a bleeding heart activist my whole life and always involved in you know, progressive issues and, and human rights issues. And if someone had approached me, I think, when I was on campus and said, oh, you want to be involved in you know, this immigrants and refugees clinic? Well, if you tell me that you care about human rights, I need to see you stand up where it's hardest. And that's against your own people in your own community. You need to prove to me that you will stand up and tell your people that their oppression of another people is the primary problem. And that's how I'll know for sure that you really do care. And I think if I had been approached with that, I would not have been prepared to negate it. And I would have wanted to know more about what our people are doing that is so evil. And I think I could have been convinced that the whole Zionist enterprise is colonialism, imperialism, apartheid, genocide, that it's that it's truly evil and that the Jewish people are responsible for the world's you know, worst human rights violations. Now, my mom totally disagrees, says she raised me better than that. And I never <laughs> could have been turned against our community. But honestly, thank God I was never approached with that narrative. 
And now that I know what I know and I, you know, and I am as passionate as I am, I understand why our vulnerable young people on college campuses who truly are committed to a better world, to tikkun olam, who want to stand with the most marginalized among us, why they are taught that they need to stand against Jewish liberation in order to stand for the liberation of others. So the way the litmus test is imposed in these spaces, it's done... Um, in a way that forces people to often reject our own identities in order to show up for other people. And so it's a question of anti-Zionism, not criticism of Israeli policy. And you started this question talking about the conflation of issues. For me, Zionism is not about settlements because Zionism is not about borders. Zionism is about Jewish liberation. It's our movement for self-determination. It's it's our movement for civil rights. You know, the, the contemporary state is a whole different debate. The security questions of the contemporary state. I, as an American Jew, should not be held accountable for Israel's wrongdoing or ostensible wrongdoing. And I often find that the people who are imposing the litmus test, I mean, I, I overwhelmingly find that the people who are imposing the litmus test don't even understand the questions that they're asking us. The fact is that when the test is imposed, I reject it. Because nobody would say to a Chinese-American woman in the Women's March, what is your position on China's occupation of Tibet or imprisonment of a million Uyghurs? And if you don't answer that the way I want you to, you're not welcome to be here and fight for reproductive justice and health care and equal pay and family leave. That would never happen. And if it did, I would be the first person to call it out as explicitly racist. So the fact that the Jewish people are held accountable for Israel or, you know, Israel's ostensible wrongdoing, as I said, it's, it's racist. It's anti-Semitic to put a test on us. That does not suggest that we don't have every right to criticize or that we shouldn't, because I think we should, and I do. But institutionally, Zionists exist to fight the anti-Semitism that manifests as anti-Zionism, which is the litmus test. I was with you until you got to the part about the racism. And, and, and here's my thinking. I have to qualify this by never having been with any even earshot, much less the object of such a litmus test. But it's not such a stretch for me to imagine that people who are prone to imposing such a litmus test on either a Chinese person, which is a very apt example because it could easily be done to Chinese person because it's mm -hmm. such an obvious and widely known case of occupation, etc. Um, and Jews, because of Israel, also widely known. But also, you know, uh, in America, some, some um, white, cisgendered, hetero guy comes to one of these, you know, as you call them, bleeding heart, uh, you know, movement things. And I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if they were imposed with a litmus test about American uh, colonialism of the overthrow of Latin American democracies or what, I don't know, whatever a million sins America has done and say, you know, like, you know, you gotta, you gotta own that, man. I mean, if that happens, I, I, I think it's probably not right to hold this one person accountable for the wrongdoing of the past. <laughs> right, I right, think that's it's probably not, not quite not fair. Right, but it wouldn't be racist. Right, but it's not, it's not institutionalized. It's not part of the space. It's not part of the menu of like when I'm talking about LGBT equality okay. and women's advancement you're saying, and reproduction and, you know, and, and, you know, climate change, gun control, racial justice, you know, and anti-Zionism. Right, right. It's not even Palestine. Right, I right, wish right. it was Palestine because that would right, be right, something we, to right, fight for as right, opposed right. to something to fight against. Against. Right, right. And fighting against Israel's existence is not progressive. Right. But we've done some conflating now because we see the Palestinian flag with Native Americans or whatever the, the, the case you gave. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're just being positive and saying Palestinian rights. Not a, not but a, they're not. 
They're not. They're they're telling Jews you have to be anti-Zionist to to be welcome here. You're not welcome here unless you disavow Israel's existence. And you know it's interesting. I hate the term pro-Israel. I won't I, use it. I'm with you. I think it is so problematic, so dangerous. And and we've set up these two binaries in our community where being pro-Israel means we're automatically anti-Palestinian, which right. is so not true. So not true. And and really the inverse is is true at least quite often, if not overwhelmingly. The people who identify as pro-Palestinian are exclusively anti-Israel. I don't see them doing anything to actually advance Palestinian society. I wish they would. That's why I'm saying if this were truly pro-Palestinian, we would be talking about how to advance Palestinian people and build an infrastructure and education and, and root out corruption and help them, you know, self-determine in, in their own prosperous land. I would love to have that conversation um, in a progressive space, you know. But to be honest, because that's not what the conversation is, I think that we need to be focusing on the domestic issues that these movements are about because I have the power to actually effectuate change there and they actually affect my life on a regular basis. The fact that the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has become part of the progressive left conversation in America is so bad for the advancement of all the movements that I care about in America. And when you look at the Women's March right now, I mean, we're proudly, Zionist proudly participates in the Women's March because we care so much about the advancement of the women's agenda and we can't let this, this critical space with millions of women march Marching, you know, in in and and men and allies, you know, people who want to see women's rights advanced. Um, we can't let this space be divided and destroyed by the anti-Semitism that you know was part of its founding. We have to overcome that and and protect it by talking about the issues that this event is actually about. And I think that's what we should be focusing on, you know. And and we can show up with all of our authentic selves as as American women, as feminists, as progressives, as as activists for social change, as proud Zionists because we're Jews. Um, but but proud Zionists who really don't want to talk about Israeli policy or American policy vis-a-vis Israel because it has nothing to do with, you know, reproductive rights or, you know, my access to to abortion care. Um, and there's another point about the binary that I want to go back to, which is there's the, the one binary is that if you're pro-Israel, you're automatically anti-Palestinian. But the other one is that by legitimizing the term pro-Israel, we, the Jewish community, have also legitimized the term anti-Israel, totally. which in my mind is totally illegitimate. There is no anti-Spain movement. There is no anti-Russia movement or or Syria, for God's sakes. I don't think that Syria should cease to exist. I wish that its you know genocidal dictator leader would not be in charge anymore. But I I would like to see Syria, where Syrian people are protected and safe and living in you know in a prosperous Syria. So there's one movement in the world that is anti the existence of a member of the you know community of nations, and it's the anti-Israel community, and it is only legitimate because we call ourselves the pro-Israel community. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I'm, I'm familiar with the argument. I think anyone involved in Jewish community and Jewish conversations is familiar with your argument about this singling out of Israel's right to exist. Um, in a way that no other nation is uh, singled out. 
I'm not sure it's entirely accurate. I mean, when new nations are born, like South Sudan, East Timor, mm-hmm. uh, when they are born, usually not out of nothing, like us, they're usually born because Conflict. they're... they're not, not just conflict, but more affirmatively, they're born because there's a difference between them and the country they're a part of. Oh, yeah, but I'm saying right. there's always a conflict right, when a right. new state but is, there is comes also, into existence. But there is also always the negation of the legitimacy of the proposal itself, the proposition itself. And so it's not just Israel. Anytime something is born like this, someone says, you have no right to do that. I mean, the American Civil War is a version of that. We say, we say to the South, you, you can't just... Be a country. I think Seventy years later, people still questioned whether America should be as a country. They would have questioned the South if the South had won. And yes, I do believe that. I think that when you have a, a brand new nation, uh, everyone who is in conflict with a nation says you have no right to exist as a nation. And there's another component here, which is that um, we want our cake and we want to eat it too. On the one hand, we want to be this unique story of redemption and this magical, romanticized thing where the Jewish people returned home after 2,000 years, et cetera, et cetera. And and we play to the uniqueness. And then when we are cornered for our uniqueness, uh, all of a sudden it's like, well, you're treating us differently than us. Now, here was where I really differ with you. I say bring it on. I say challenge my right to exist to your heart's delight as long as you have the self-respect and the intellectual honesty to hear my side of the argument. Because mm-hmm. here's what I believe. I believe that it is an umbilical connection. I believe we are indigenous. I think we have an incredible story. Mm-hmm. I think it's a compelling story. I think it is a religious, ethnic, territorial, historical, Torah-based. I mean, I think it's literary on every level. It is so thick. Mm-hmm. It is so rich. It is and it is precisely because it is not just about the fact that the land of Israel was our focal point, the only thing we all shared. It's because it is part of a nexus of five or six other major components of Jewish civilization right. that we all shared, we all acknowledged. Right. You see a Jew from across the globe who looks nothing like you and maybe only knows a few words of Hebrew and therefore has yep. no language in common with you. Yep. There is no doubting of the fundamental solidarity and, the, and, and, and more than solidarity. Goosebumps. Not only solidarity, but fraternity or sorority of yep. destiny. Yes, yes. And, and, and that nexus is the, 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 the warp and the weft of, of, a, of, 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 of a fabric that is so um, multicolored and complicated and strong. That's the story of Zionism. And I will tell that to anybody. And give me an opening and I'll yes, tell it. I love so that. I don't mind. And I do mind the intellectual dishonesty of calling us colonists. Now, it's a problem. Why is it a problem? Because they pick up on this coincidence of colloquialism right. that the early Zionists referred to settling the land as colony. And that's... that's they you know, still, in France, they still call settlements Israeli colonies. I know. Now, like you, I'm much more susceptible to the argument of like the Palestinians saying, great, you can be as indigenous as you want, but... This round of history in this century, we were here and we've been displaced. And okay, well, then we negotiate and we either negotiate or we don't, but at least I get the intellectual honesty of that. And so um, I come at it at a slightly different angle from you, but I, I really take your admonition to heart. 
Which Wait, is that, you said so many things. I have I'm sorry, to respond. I'm sorry. Yeah, I apologize. I, apologize. Okay. I spoke too much. You're no, the no, 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 no. I just don't. I'm trying to keep in my head all the things I need to respond to. Okay. The first one is that you're saying that every time a state um, is created, there are questions as to its legitimacy. And I just negate, I fundamentally disagree that that's a okay. thing. Because Israel, I have to really memorize these numbers. I think Israel was like number 45 in the states, the member states of the United Nations that were internationally recognized as, as legitimate sovereign states. And there are 192 now, which means there were, what, 150-something, 149 states that were established and recognized by the international community after Israel. And no, I they weren't established after they were recognized. 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 not established. Many of them have been established in the last 20 years. When you're talking about the community of nations, the international community, what we see in the United Nations as the member states, the, the states on the face of the planet, I don't know an international movement to delegitimize any of them, to deny the legitimate existence of any other state. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, they existed before Israel or, or were recognized before Israel. Nobody passed a few years after has an ongoing conversation in terms of trying to actually deny the legitimacy in order to have the international community unrecognize the state or recognize and supplant the state with another state. That's not a thing that happens anywhere else. So the, the hyper-organized um, and persistent and global uh, vilification and persistence on, on a given state's birth and subsequent legitimacy for you know decades and decades, we agree. I mm -hmm. acknowledge that there's nothing so... There's so, nothing remotely close to but it. The, but in quality, fundamentally, is all I was making. It was a narrow point, and you've... you've yeah, I just you've think the broader point it. is that it's it's just... There's nothing like that. But I assure like you that best. China expends tremendous time, energy, and money in internationalizing as much as it can the delegitimacy of Tibet. But no one, no one else cares. Right. So I'm, 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 I'm acknowledging that difference. Right. I'm acknowledging that difference. Yeah. There's no international movement to delegitimize fine. Tibet. In fact, there is an international so, movement to support Tibet. Yes, yes. As, far, so. as far as that goes, I think we agree. Yeah. But then but then beyond that, the way that you just described Zionism, I said I had goosebumps. I, was, I really meant it. And when people who I respect who have this, this passion and this ability to talk about our history and our story and, and where Zion, the land of Israel, fits into it, that is so powerful for me to listen to. And I think I can articulate it pretty well, but I mean, the way you just did it was so incredible. The thing is, not a lot of people can talk about Israel the way that you can. Not a lot of people can talk about the Jewish people the way that you can. And so young American Jews, just as one example, I mean, this is something people, adults, people older than me, people who come to me to talk about Zionists feel so unable to have this conversation. And so when somebody says to you, you know, I don't think Israel is legitimate, and you say, I welcome that, bring it on, and I will tell you why it is, that's because you are very well equipped and you work at HUC. <laughs> you, you have an ability to, to have this argument that most American Jews don't. And so one of the problems with the litmus test for me is that it demands that Jews know things, have complex opinions on history, policy, context, the Middle East, you know, national security, international security, <laughs> you know, borders, flotillas, checkpoints. I right. mean, for God's sakes. So you have to understand all these things. But then even beyond understanding them as a Jew, you have to declare your opinion on them. And until you declare an opinion that XYZ leader of XYZ movement agrees with, you're simply not welcome to participate. That's the problem. Right. You're talking about uh, 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 this rigorous ideological litmus test that is imposed in a relatively 
broad swath yes. of, of, in this case, progressive organizations. Yes. And that is, is oppressive for its systematized um, yeah. picking on. It's, it is outright discrimination. And if you and I went together to a march, it would be really fun because right. people would come to us and we would have this whole debate and no one would ever ask us another question again. But everybody else says, what do you mean I have to tell you about settlement policy? I don't know anything about settlement policy. Oh, well, if you want me to be the good Jew, I will tell you settlements are the obstacle to peace. Can I play the progressive game now? Can I talk about, you know, my bodily integrity in America under Donald Trump? Have I done enough to prove to you that I care about this issue? That is heartbreaking to me that we feel like we have to say that, not because settlements are not one of the obstacles to peace. They're not the exclusive obstacle to peace. And But much more importantly than that, the fact that a Jew has to say X to be welcome is a problem. It is a real problem. And I don't want people to feel like they have to, you know, either reject Zionism entirely or qualify their Zionism. I want them to understand Zionism is not about Israeli policy. They can be proud Zionists without talking about Israeli policy. And, you know, what's fascinating, I mentioned earlier that I feel like the people who ask these questions are not at all informed on the questions themselves. So I always use this example of how no matter where I go, whenever I speak, if it's at an event or a rally or something, or if I'm, you know, speaking on a stage somewhere, somebody always wants to know what is the Zionist position on settlement policy. It's like the first question every time. And I say, we don't take institutional positions. You know, we have lots of debates within Zionist communities. People are interested. They want to learn. You know, uh, we partner with policy organizations so that so that Zionist activists can talk about Israeli issues. But but we are a domestic social justice activist space. We're focused on American issues. OK, no one's ever satisfied with that. What about settlement policy? I need to know what you think about settlement policy. I can I can hear the conversation can, of in my course. head. It's just, you, but you haven't, how can you be a progressive if you won't talk about settlement policy? So say, okay, are you talking about a Mona or Modian elite? Silence, crickets. No matter whether I am talking to a B'nai B'rith leadership forum of right. 150 Jewish leaders or whether I am talking to rabbis or Hillel students or, you know, activists on XYZ issue, nobody can tell me the difference between Amona and Modi and Elite. And the reason that I ask this question always is just to demonstrate how ridiculous the question is. It's not because I expect anyone to know the difference between Amona and Modi and Elite. But the point is, these are very complicated topics. And when you ask an American Jew to take a position, a very simple one-line position on settlement policy in order to be welcome to fight for racial justice in America, this is not just exclusionary to Jews. It is bad for, you know, the fight against police brutality, the fight, you know, against mass incarceration. There are real things that American Jews want to be active on and, and committed to and fighting for as allies, as progressives, as people who want America to be strong. Stronger. And when we are faced with these kinds of questions, we end up staying home. And it's bad for the progressive left. Thank you very much for your work at Zioness and for taking Thank the time you. to join me in this great conversation. My pleasure. You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.